This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is episode two in our three-part series on Ishmael Bea's national bestseller, A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier. Uh, it is Ishmael Bea's first-hand account of what he experienced as a child during Sierra Leone's long-armed conflict, which completely ravaged the country and displaced a third of its inhabitants and between uh, 1991 until its official end in January of 2002. Last week, we discussed the origins of the war and the fact that the violence endured for so long. It was so bloody in large part because it was funded by what we call blood diamonds. These were the precious gems that were mined and sold by both sides of the conflict in order to buy weapons. Well, uh, Bea's account begins with an introduction dating to 1998. Now, that's interesting because that's far after the conflict you just talked about. He's talking about it as a reflection. So from the beginning of the story, we know that Ishmael Bea not only survives the war, but somehow manages to write his story from New York City. Now, that's crazy to think about when you think about the chapters we just discussed last week, chapters 1 through 10. We can also see by that introduction that he manages to escape the conflict before it officially ends. In these early chapters, we meet our innocent group of boys. They're just living normal adolescent lives that are interrupted by murderous and senseless killing sprees. The boys run because that's the only thing they can do. They run in a group to survive. But by the very nature of the war, they are not only threatened by all sorts of dangers, but they themselves are perceived as threats. They are the exact profile of the nation's most deadly assassins. They're on the run with nowhere to go. They're totally disenfranchised for almost an entire year. This week, we will discuss only five chapters, chapters 10 through 15, because these are the chapters that detail Bea's relatively brief discussion and of his two years spent as a soldier. 
He's only 13, but he will serve as a soldier for two years in what is basically a terrorist squad, victimizing, in many cases, innocent civilians. Gary, before we read Bea's individual story, you know, when we think about the concept of childhood soldiers in general, obviously it's an inhumane practice, but what armies and terrorists do to these children to manipulate them into becoming killing machines is really obviously immoral, really by any code of morality. But what these children do in the perceived service of freedom or liberation, it goes far beyond international humanitarian law or acceptable standards of warfare that's conducted by, you know, adult soldiers in armed conflicts. And especially, you know, what these child soldiers are known to have done to innocent civilians. How could, and this is the question, any leader on any side of any political conflict justify this kind of practice for any political or economical reason? (laughs) Oh, how much time do we have? I know. Uh, You know, well, and of course, and, and these acts defy the Geneva Conventions, which have been ratified by every nation on the planet and as such, soldiers who violate them um, are to be tried in international courts, as we have seen happen to uh, Charles Taylor of Liberia. What child soldiers did in Sierra Leone and are doing today all around the world is immoral and terrible. But does it matter that they are children? I mean, of course it does. This is an old problem. It has a long history around the world uh, that we can trace historically for hundreds and really thousands of years. So... Let's put this into context first by defining our terms, giving some operational okay. definitions here. <laughs> you love defining terms. I love operational definitions. Uh, most authors define child soldiers as all people under the age of 18 who are recruited either to a country's armed forces or to a non-government agency. Uh, you know, this is exactly what we see happening to Bea as he fights uh, for the Sierra Leone government, but also what we see happening by the rebels of the RUF. The problem is not unique to any one region of the world, and we have no idea how many child soldiers there actually are. Uh, most organizations looking to provide statistics suggest that there are anywhere between 200,000 to 500,000 worldwide today, but that is an absolute guess. Um, There are reasons to think this number may be inflated, but even if it's half that, that's unthinkable. And we do know that it is extremely rare for wealthier children from urban areas to be recruited. Most child soldiers come from rural, impoverished areas or marginalized sectors of society. And in other words, child soldiers will be in places where children don't have options. Often, just like in Bayes case, they come from actual conflict zones. And uh, another thing most of us don't realize is that 40% of child soldiers today are girls. Wow. So are young girls uh, acting as combatants? Yes. Uh, but as you might expect, lots of them are used as laborers, and likely most, if not all of them, are exploited sexually. And uh, the Women's Commission for Refugee Women and Children suggests that even that percentage may be low. And, Uh, Before the May 1997 coup, there was a disarmament and resettlement unit set up for the Sierra Leonean government for escapees from rebel camps. Um, Of the 1,000 fighters that were screened, 605 of them were women. Wow. Well, if you go by that number, 60% of them are women. Exactly. Uh, But before we get into the particulars of Sierra Leone, let's think uh, the issue holistically. And 
how this has emerged around the globe historically. Uh, child soldiers, as we define in the day, are nothing new, nor is it something only practiced in what we might consider third world conflict zones like Sierra Leone. Uh, on the American continent, the U.S. American Army fought against child soldiers um, among the Native Americans of the Plains and who with their family groups were fighting for their very existence as a nation. Many cultures, and we've even seen this portrayed in movies, but, you know, but think of the ancient Greek cultures. For many cultures all over the world, participating in military pursuits has been, and perhaps still is a common rite of passage, essential really to the achievement of full adult status inside of cultural community. If you want a good example, just look at the Spartans. So, I mean, if you think of it that way, are you saying that it's culturally appropriate or that culture should be taken into consideration if we're going to make a moral judgment about child soldiers? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying as we uh, immediately jump to moral judgments of others who have condoned these practices, we must know that all people groups have utilized child soldiers. And, but beyond that, the older historical examples I just gave you, we can find examples much more recent even than that. Uh, as recent as World War II in the United States and even World War I, we had people uh, who lied about their age and got into military as child soldiers. So it's every country, every culture around the world that it happens. You know, I can recall specifically Peter Jackson. He made that, you know, fantastic documentary about World War One. There's an interesting uh, piece of footage where a recruiter tells a boy, I can't remember the quote exactly, but it's something to the effect that, how old are you, son? And the boy says something like, I'm 16. And he says, you're too young. You're supposed to be 18. Come back tomorrow. <laughs> In other words, we'll let you enlist, but you at least have to lie about your age. Yes, uh, that's it exactly. And there is nothing moral about war when it gets down to it. And there is no way to downplay the suffering combatants endure. And it's unimaginable to think what children have endured as combatants over the years. But all cultures have been guilty of this and are guilty of this. And when we look at it from the perspective of the families of the boys fighting, Often they're very proud of their sons who are enlisting. Um, if they come from highly impoverished areas, we see that becoming a soldier has sometimes been a way for a young man to support his family. It may be a child's only means of survival. Well, obviously, when we look at Bea's perspective, I mean, his family's dead. And survival seems to be his primary motivation for enlisting to fight, although obviously revenge is going to play a, a huge role. Oh, truly. I mean, in 1989, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child offered a vision of childhood uh, derived from certain values and practices and attempted to promote a worldwide standard. And in the document they created, um, childhood was defined as existing through age 18, which is a wonderful idea, except sadly for many situations around the world, like the one we're reading about. Uh, thinking of childhood as enduring until the age of 18 is really an unmanageably unattainable um, idea, and no one except the very elite could aspire to it. And we know for a fact that all children do not live in an environment where they're well-fed and loved and protected and free to study and play, and that uh, does not just exclude war zones. Yeah, you know, I, I took a look at that document, and I noticed that every nation in the world except one— I mean, 196 nations have pledged to uphold the 54 Articles of the Convention. 
That's the most rapidly and widely ratified treaty in history. The only country that didn't is the United States. They did not <laughs> sign it. Gary, why has the United States not signed this document? Oh, we it's, it's a long standing. I mean, I could go all the way back to Woodrow Wilson, but um, it's a political issue. And one we're not going to have time to discuss here. I mean, I would suggest the reason isn't that the United States is against the ideas that are set forth in the document. There are just many politicians that don't want the U.S. to sign off on any kind of internationally binding document, um, even when it protects children. And the reality is, signing or not signing it, all countries, even the wealthiest among us, have yet to do all they need to do to fulfill the rights of every child in their own countries. Um, but in countries experiencing conflict, it's an even uh, bigger challenge. How does the world stop what we see happening in Bea's memoir? Uh, even advocates and humanitarians who work with children all over the world don't have an easy answer in how to even situate um, this entire discussion. And Solving this uh, involves aspects of warfare and international law and human rights in general. And children in these um, war-torn areas, and not just in Africa, but in the Middle East, many of them have been robbed of their childhoods almost entirely way before they were ever given a gun. Um, we see this in Bayes' account. Before he picked up the gun, he had already been subjected to all kinds of atrocities and robbed of his childhood. Uh, everything had been burned to the ground, literally and figuratively, and Bayes is left empty and vulnerable to be exploited by anyone. Yeah, and that might be a good segue to kind of get into the specifics of our story. You know, we, we want to start in Chapter 10. Bea and his new friends are confronted with death, and this is on a very personal level. One of their little group that have been running around together dies, and this is horrifying. He wasn't killed or murdered by the rebels directly. He dies basically from not being able to take care of himself physically. Let's read what Bea has to say about this first death. Well, not really the first death, but this death in their little group of, of boys. When we called out Sedu's name, Sedu didn't answer. We searched for him among the bushes. He was lying there quietly. We shook him hard, calling out his name, but he was silent. Ahaji and Juma began to cry. Kenai and I dragged Sedu onto the path and sat by him. He was just lying there. My hands began trembling uncontrollably as we sat there throughout the night in silence. My head became heavy as I thought about what we were going to do. I do not remember who it was among us that whispered, maybe it was the bird that we ate. Most of my travel companions began to cry, but I couldn't. I just sat there staring into the night as if searching for something. You know, I thought about that, and maybe it was the bird that they ate. I mean, it could have been something like that. Who even knows? They're just scavenging off the land, just living, you know, is just rough. And at the end of chapter 10, after they buried Saidu, Bea says this, and I want to quote him. When we started to walk away, we all began to sob. The cockcrows faded only to make us aware of our silence. The silence that asked, who will be next to leave us? The question was in our eyes when we looked at each other. We walked fast as if trying to stay in that daytime, afraid that nighttime would turn over the uncertain pages of our lives. You know, that's, a to me, a particularly beautiful written paragraph. But 
as beautiful as it is, it fails to express because it's not possible to express how terrifying it would be to feel exposed at that level. I mean, obviously you're scared of darkness, but not just physical darkness. These little boys, there's no one there, no one to protect you from violence, from starvation, from disease. I mean, these children are in the most vulnerable state imaginable. You know, although it appears wandering in the darkness alone in Africa is the most vulnerable and exposed, really, of all environments for young boys, we see in Chapter 12 there is one state even worse than that one, the one we had described up to this point in this book. In Chapter 12, Bea discovers that his entire family has been murdered. He was literally hours from being reunited with them, and they were delayed by a man named Gazumu, and uh, Bea is angry, but if they had not been delayed, he would most certainly have been murdered with them, and now he knows for sure his life has gone past the point of no return. You know, up until this point in his narrative, he is resting on the hope that he would one day be reunited with his family, but now even that hope is gone. The RUF, we assume, really has murdered them all. Yeah, let's. I want to read that. My entire body went into shock. Only my eyes moved, slowly opening and closing. I tried to shake my legs to get my blood flowing, but I fell to the ground, holding my face. On the ground, I felt as if my eyes were growing too big for their sockets. I could feel them expanding, and the pain released from my body from the shock. I ran toward the house. Without any fear, I went inside and looked around the smoke-filled rooms. The floor was filled with heaps of ashes. No solid form of a body was inside. I screamed from the top of my lungs and began to cry as loudly as I could, punching and kicking with all my might into the weak walls that continued to burn. I had lost my sense of touch. My hands and feet punched and kicked the burning walls, but I couldn't feel a thing. Gesemu and the rest of the other boys began pulling me away from the house. I kept kicking and punching as they dragged me out. Wow, you know, the anguish that he expresses in this passage cannot really be expressed with words. I mean, he has to express it through the physical expression of screaming and kicking and punching, uh, but there is nothing to relieve that pain. No, and in this vulnerable space, you know, he's going to meet death again. Kasamu, you know, this is the man who caused him to evade the death that he would have suffered had he united with his family, is now going to die in his arms. I mean, within a few months, Bea has seen strangers blown to death in horrible ways. He's seen a friend die of disease. His entire family was gone before he could get to them. And now his only caretaker is dying in his arms. Bea is surrounded by nothing but death. And this is how he walks into chapter 12, where he confronts rows and rows of men carrying machine guns, AK-47s, G3s, RPGs. I mean, these are guns from all over the world. He mentions that the eyes of the soldiers are very red. They had seen people die. But these are not rebels. Bea has run into the military. And it seems to be a good thing. I mean, maybe he's found a place of safety. Let's read what he says about it. He says this. 
In the beginning, it seemed we had finally found safety at Yelly. The village was always full of lively chatter and laughter. The adults, civilians, and soldiers spoke about the weather, planting seasons, hunting, nothing about the war. At first, we couldn't understand why people behaved this way. I mean, here he comes. He walks into something that seems good to be true. And, of course, it is too good to be true. After some time, the war breaks out again. Things get serious. And then we get to the speech where Bea and his friends are recruited to be soldiers in the Sierra Leonean Army. In the forest, there are men waiting to destroy all of our lives. We have fought them as best we can, but there are too many of them. They are all around the village. The lieutenant made a circle in the air with his hands. They won't give up until they capture this village. They want our food and ammunition. He paused and slowly continued. Some of you are here because they have killed your parents or families, other because this is a safe place to be. Well, it is not that safe anymore. That is why we need strong men and boys to help us fight these guys so that we can keep this village safe. If you do not want to fight or help, that is fine, but you will not have rations and will not stay in this village. You are free to leave because we only want people here who can help cook, prepare ammunition, and fight. There are enough women to run the kitchen, so we need the help of able boys and men to fight these rebels. This is your time to revenge the deaths of your families and to make sure more children do not lose their families. He took a deep breath. Tomorrow morning, you must all line up here, and we will select the people for various tasks that have to be carried out. He left the square, followed by his men. We stood in silence for a while and slowly started walking to our respective sleeping places as the curfew was approaching. Inside, Juma, Ahaji, Kenai, Mariba, Musa, and I quietly discussed what we were going to do. The rebels will kill anyone from this village because they will consider us their enemy, spies, or what, or that we have sided with the other side of the war. This is what the staff sergeant said. Ahaji said, explaining the dilemma we faced. The rest of the boys who were lying on their mats got up and joined us as Ahaji continued. It is better to stay here for now, he sighed. We had no choice. Leaving the village was a, as good as being dead. Well, obviously, I mean, they're trapped. Yes, and, and this is something completely foreign to anyone who has lived life outside the framework of war. Um, in 1996, Madeleine Albright, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, um, expressed outrage at the situation of child soldiers. And I quote her descriptions of what child soldiers do. They are toting automatic weapons, slaughtering innocent civilians, and ignoring the rule of law. Child soldiers have no identity other than through the weapons they carry. Uh, and, you know, of course, Albright was right in her assessment and her outrage. But uh, as we see through Bea's story, it's so complicated. Bea is very careful in his selection of detail to take a reader step by step through this process of how a child assassin is born. We tend to think that child soldiers are coerced against their will. And, and of course, we see the RUF doing that very thing in the beginning chapters of the book. Uh, or in other cases, we think of young children joining revolutionary movements because they are being victimized by a corrupt government. And, and in Sierra Leone, this was the case as well. You know, in, in those mining districts, many young teenagers joined the RUF cause for that very reason. 
True, uh, but in this case, and I guess, you know, many cases, Bea is not really being forced into being a soldier. He chooses it as his means of survival. Chapter 12 and 13, you know, breathe life into Madeline Albright's assessment of what happens. We watch Bea, you know, in some sense, volunteer, and we get to follow his training process, which is basically nothing. He knows that the only thing they really learn how to do is to eat in under a minute. But then after that, we walk with him through the jungle. We participate in her first battle. We witness Josiah at age 11 die right before him. You know, the most um, conservative estimates I saw say that anywhere from um, 5,000 to 7,000 children fought on both sides of the war in Sierra Leone. Half of those were between the ages of 8 to 14. Um, A large number were killed or mutilated during the war. And the RUF was the first to utilize child soldiers, but the government followed suit, as we see here, you know, during the military regime of Captain Strasser, who ruled between uh, 1992 and 1996. Uh, Strasser expanded the army by bringing in not just children, but also recruiting people that we might term as scoundrels. I mean, these scoundrel elements turned into something that became known as sobels, you know, or soldier rebels, in other words. They were actually members of the Sierra Leone military uh, who would be soldiers by day for the government, then be rebels by night. It was a real mess. Yeah, I mean, it's just unsolvable. And, And the way the children are recruited, to me, this just feels so manipulative. The lieutenant gathers everyone in the square. He drags in the bodies of two people that are killed by the RUF. He describes what the RUF does. You know, none of this is a lie. He says this, and I quote him. Some of you are here because they have killed your parents or families. Others because this is a safe place to be. Well, it's not safe anymore. That is why we need strong men and boys to help us fight these guys so that we can keep the village safe. If you do not want to fight or help, that's fine, but you will have your ra- you will not have rations and you will not stay in the village. You're free to leave because we only want people who can help cook, prepare ammunition and fight. There are enough women to run the kitchen. I mean, look at what he's saying. We need boys to able boys to fight these rebels. This is your time to revenge the death of your families, to make sure more children do not lose their families. I mean, how can anyone resist that? Right. I mean, according to research um, conducted by the United Nations and other organizations, and obviously, as most of us would imagine, this desire to seek revenge for lost parents and destruction of their environment uh, has been a major reason for children enlisting in the armed forces and Children in interviews answering a question of what motivated them to join spoke about that over and over again. Um, but that isn't the sole reason. Um, they also spoke about the disgust they felt at their dislocation and the destruction brought on by the rebels. Uh, many spoke about needing family. Uh, the army became something of a surrogate family for these de- these uh, displaced children and Of course, um, they don't think of it as a trade, but in reality, that is really what it is. And and what we see is grotesque. I mean, children go expecting safety and family, but they get neither. 
They are not safe at all, and neither is this a family. And security they are given is the security of their own AK-47. And uh, one child said that an AK-47 brought food, money, a warm bath, and instant adult respect. Another child said, and I want to quote him here, I like it in the Army because we could do anything we like to do. When some civilian had something I liked, I just took it without him doing anything to me. We used to rape women. Anything I wanted to do, I did. I was free. Wow. Well, you know, if you just sit down and read Bea's memoir, you may get the impression that he's recounting, you know, random stories, just stuff that he remembers. But if you think about it and take a second read, we see that this isn't just a list of stories. It's an argument. He's not just remembering things. Their purpose to these stories and the few stories that he discusses, and he doesn't, you know, go into detail about every single thing, but the, the things that he brings up as his time as a soldier illustrate exactly what you're saying. He specifically highlights his special relationship, this weird bond that he has with his gun. He talks about how heavy it felt when he first got it and, and how he never let it go. He references this little boy named Sheku and, of course, Josiah. Neither one of these little boys were big enough to carry their ammunition, and they couldn't hold their own guns. They were so small that their commander gave them a stool so they could prop up their guns and keep the guns from falling when they fought. Josiah, as you already mentioned, he's a little boy that died on Bea's first day of battle, but Sheku was only seven years old. We come to understand that these boys associated what they were doing more with fictional things like movies or video games. I don't know how their relationship worked with these things, but you kind of get the impression that in some ways it wasn't real. They're not even old enough to conceptualize the difference between what they're seeing in movies and video games and the actual people that they're killing in real life. I don't know. You know, this isn't stated, but it just comes across to me that the reality kind of gets muddled. Absolutely. I mean, notice how often they watched war movies in these camps. Um, Bea's story seems to be very typical of the experiences for thousands of children serving as soldiers. And Of course, we don't know um, how many children died in combat during the war in Sierra Leone. Um, No one kept any records on the numbers, but we uh, do know, and as the story illustrates, children are far more likely to get killed or injured than the adults. And there are several reasons for this. Uh, First of all, child soldiers are braver. They also tend not to know their environments as well as adults. And uh, they, they receive, again, as we see in base descriptions, almost zero training. And they just don't know what they're doing. They don't have adequate survival skills in general. Often the children get second-rate medical treatment if supplies are scarce, and which they always are. Uh, officials get first dibs on everything, including medical care. The bottom line is that in many cases, um, children are just dispensable. Uh, they don't have uh, anyone that they are accountable to. No one knows them. No one is watching out for them. And finally, you know, the last thing that I think we need to highlight in this episode is we observe Bea transform into a child soldier. We can't forget to talk about the role of drugs. The first time he went out to fight, they gave everyone, before they left, white pills. 
after the battle where he kills his first person and where he sees his friends slaughtered, he's given more pills. Bea never reveals what these pills are. I read an article that he wrote for the New York Times in 2007, and in that article he says that to this day he does not know what were in those pills. From the description, it seems to me, you know, they kept him up all night, they gave him energy that they must be, I don't know, some sort of speed or amphetamine. But here in chapter 14, we see that little white pills aren't the only thing the boys are given. Let's read that part where they talk about the drugs. The sharp aches in my head, or what I later came to be known as migraines, stopped as my daily activities were replaced with more soldierly things. In the daytime, instead of playing soccer in the village square, I took turns at the guardian posts around the village, smoking marijuana and sniffing brown-brown cocaine mixed with gunpowder which was always spread out on the table, and of course, uh, taking more of the white capsules as I had become addicted to them. They gave me a lot of energy. The first time I took all these drugs at the same time, I began to perspire so much that I took off all my clothes. My body shook. My sight became blurred. I lost my hearing for several minutes. I walked around the village aimlessly. As I felt restless because I simultaneously felt a tremendous rush of energy and numbness, But after several doses of these drugs, all I felt was numbness to everything and so much energy that I couldn't sleep for weeks. We watched movies at night, war movies, Rambo First Blood, Rambo 2, Commando, and so on with the aid of a generator or sometimes a car battery. We all wanted to be like Rambo. We couldn't wait to implement his techniques. When we ran out of food, drugs, ammunition, and gasoline... To watch our war films, we raided rebel camps in towns, villages, and forests. We also attacked civilian villages to capture recruits and whatever else we could find. And so this is life for him. I mean, raiding villages, smoking marijuana, sniffing this thing he calls brown bag cocaine mixed with gunpowder, consuming more and more of these little white capsules. Chapter 15 tells us that this was just a pattern, and it went on for over two years. Let me quote him. The villages that we captured and turned into our bases, we went along, and the forces that we slept in became my home. My squad was my family. My gun was my provider and protector, and my rule was to kill or be killed. The extent of my thoughts didn't go much beyond that. We had been fighting for over two years, and killing had become a daily activity. I felt no pity for anyone. My childhood had gone by without my knowing, and it seemed as if my heart was frozen. I knew that day and night came and went because of the presence of the moon and the sun, but I had no idea whether it was Sunday or a Friday. You know, more than Bay, his childhood was gone. Um, His humanity had left him. In chapter 15, four men dressed in white T-shirts with the words UNICEF on them came to his camp. Bea's lieutenant commands Bea and 14 of his friends to come outside. They are told to remove the magazines from their weapons, and the boys are given another speech. You have been great soldiers, and you all know that you are part of this great brotherhood. I am very proud to have served my country with you boys, but your work here is done, and I must send you off. These men will put you in school and find you another life. (laughs) Wow. 
<laughs> so someone comes and picks up their guns, and they're just ushered into a truck. I guess. Yeah, Bea comments that he doesn't know what is going on. But he's getting angry and anxious primarily because uh, he has not been apart from his gun since the first day that he became a soldier. Well, in the next episode, we'll we'll talk about the final part and really the largest part of the book, uh, which is the story of Bea's rehabilitation. And that is really the true miracle in this book. Um, the taking away of that gun is the taking away of Bea's power and weaning children in this situation off of violence and away from the uh, various fighting forces is really difficult and prolonged. And uh, just as in Bea's case, most child soldiers can't go home. There's no home to return to. Uh, But more difficult than that, how does society return a child's humanity to it once it's gone? You know, as we conclude our episode, you know, there's these questions that stand out. I mean, I know they're on everybody's mind when we read these accounts. I mean, who's to blame? Where does the blame rest for the victims of, of the people that Bea murdered? I mean, is he responsible? I mean, he's pulling the trigger. But do we blame the person that gave him the drugs? Is it the lieutenant, you know, the guy who recruited him? Is it the government? Is it Sierra Leone? Does it rest on the people who buy the blood diamonds, on the people who sell the blood diamonds? I mean, you know, another natural question that we all have is what should the world do now? You know, the end of Bea's account offers answers, and that's what's so nice about the end of the book. There's an answer to these questions. Um, perhaps there's some hope. You know, we're not different than he is, and I think that's the the takeaway from this episode. We're not better. Uh, and the conclusions that he comes to in his book, his testimony, it's worth listening to and it's worth heeding. True. And uh, next episode is we talk about Esther, Leslie, the Benin house, Bea's uncle, and the many who made sacrifices to rescue Bea. We will watch Bea change the tone of a story really from uh, one of hopelessness to one of hope. And as we have seen the darkness of man's heart, we will also see the good in humanity as well. And we hope you listen as we bring to a conclusion our discussion of Ishmael Bea's important testimony of being a child soldier. Um, as always, look for free listening guides for all of these episodes, uh, as well as our, the episodes on our website. Check it out on howtolovelypodcast.com. If you enjoy our work, please support us by sharing an episode with a friend. Text this one to someone. Give us a shout out on your social media outlets. Give us a positive review on your podcast app or on YouTube. And of course, always feel free to connect directly with us. However you prefer to connect. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, email, our website, you name it, it's there. Uh, As you know, we will only grow with your help. So thank you. And as it may be more relevant than ever, peace out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.